Pac-12 started out bowl season right with a win. What does success look like for the conference? And why you should root for every Pac-12 team, even if it's your rival. Which players did enough to enter the NFL draft? And what's up with the fight for assistant coaches in the conference? And National Signing Day surprises? Who won? Who lost? I'm George Reister with Ralph Amson, and this is the Pac-12 Apostles. Ralph, man, the Pac-12 started out bowl season right. Washington got the W. And I posted on Twitter that fans of Pac-12 schools, doesn't matter whether you're Washington, Oregon, Cal, Arizona, whatever, whoever you are a fan of, that you should root for every team in the conference to be successful because it makes the entire conference look good because you're playing non-conference games. And people always say, oh, the Pac-12 can't win non-conference games, all of this. But then all my replies were, no, I'll never do it. It's awful. It's stupid. And I'm like, do you see what the SEC does? They even, if their rival wins, they pump themselves up. They put themselves on a pedestal. I'm like, why aren't Pac-12 fans savvy enough or willing to do this? All right. So I, I don't get this. Let's just get one thing straight and out in the open right away. A win in any bowl game from one of your conference mates means more money for you, correct? Your school gets paid more money if people from your conference win games. I mean, the fans don't see that money. It's not like that goes directly into their pocket. But if you're a fan of a program, any help for that program is good. These games don't affect you. I don't care if you're an Oregon fan. It doesn't affect you in the slightest to see University of Washington in a 7-5 and five season go out and take it to Boise State. What, are they going to have bragging rights? They went 7-5. and five. Who cares? Root for them because it lines your pockets. Period. This whole thing doesn't make any sense to me. It reminds me that uh, the prayer of the selfish child from the... the Shell Silverstein poem from A Light in the Attic The now I lay me down to sleep I pray the Lord my soul to keep and if I die before I wake I pray the Lord my toys will break so none of the other kids can use them Amen <laughs> That's what it reminds me of Like, it, it, why, yep. why would you care you're gone Why would you care who's playing with your toys Like, it, this, this does not affect anybody in the slightest and the thing that i don't get is that people who root against like say you root against washington they lose to boise state some of the other conference mates all lose their bowl games then you want to complain and blame larry scott for the poor performance of the teams in in bowl games like no just root for the teams and then when they win you collect the cash and then hope that your school does something positive with that extra money i absolutely and i get I get and I understand people who don't buy into the back-to-pack philosophy early in the season. Like, I I will entertain those arguments. What I don't understand is when it comes to bowl season, when you have absolutely no skin in the game whatsoever, except for the fact that you actually get extra money if they win. Like, I I will never understand not just saying, like, yeah, well, I hope the best thing for my school is the outcome. Like, that's cutting off your nose to spite your face. It makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah, 
let's just blame Larry Scott for the money. Like, yes, he has done some things that it, that he's a saboteur at times. However, don't then go and sabotage your, yourself. Take your best, do what's in your own school's best interest, which is have more money. That means more, re, uh, more re resources for recruiting. And I don't even understand it in non-conference games early in the season. If you're a Washington fan, you should be have been rooting for Oregon versus Auburn. Because if your team was as good as you thought it was going to be with Jacob Eason, Chris Peterson, you know, Jimmy Lake, uh, this defense, all of this. If it was as good as you thought it was going to be, why wouldn't you want Oregon to beat Auburn and then turn around and beat Oregon? Right. So your win means more. Exactly. It's very simple. It's very simple math. And so, like I said, I'll entertain those arguments. It doesn't mean that I buy into them. But when it comes to bowl games and it actually affects your bottom line, it's stupid. You're punishing oh, yeah. yourself in order to get some dopamine-infused satisfaction in a game that doesn't matter from a team that is beneath yours. Let's say that you're an Oregon fan because that's what a lot of the comments were. I'll never root for Washington. I'll never root for Washington. You know what the biggest insult of all is? Remember Don Draper boarding that, that, that elevator, turning to the side and saying, I don't think of you at all? Yeah. That's the biggest insult in the world. Correct. Don't watch the bowl game. Yep. Don't care about the outcome. But when somebody tells you Washington beat the living hell out of Boise State, then that's the first time you can think about it. And you can be like, oh, good. More money for me. Exactly. Like, be selfish and Rand style. Yeah. Yeah. Be like, oh, thank you. Thank you for helping our recruiting budget, Washington. We will <laughs> thank you for helping us if we sign the rest of our recruits be the number one team in the Pac-12. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for doing your part. And in reality, these bowl games, even though that they're meaningless games, they do actually affect preseason rankings for next year and how the perception is of the conference because the Pac-12 has a lot of repairing to do. Like, it needs to win games against, against name brand teams just to get the type of, you know, because, because people need to look at you and say, oh, okay. That's cool. I mean, look, look at the Boise State brand. If Boise State, when Boise State beat Florida State, nobody was surprised because they beat so many good teams that you're like, oh, well, yeah, Boy Boise is a pretty good team. But then when Washington, and they have enough cachet that when Washington wins, they're like, oh, okay, Washington, that was a solid win. And so it, it, be, it just... And then when you're looking forward to your team winning a national championship or the possibility of being getting in the college football playoff, you want to make sure that your the teams that you are playing are as pumped up and inflated as possible. The way you be the one to pump them, the the one to pop them. You know, you want USC yes. to be eight and zero when you play them, and then you beat USC. Whoever that, that team is, if you're Arizona State, if you're UCLA, whoever it is, you want them to be as good as possible. Yeah, and you want to you want to manage your resources so well that any additional resources can be used to just kick other people's asses, right? If Washington wants to make sure that University of Oregon cashes a bigger check, then University of Oregon uses that check to turn around and kick Washington's ass some more. That's got to be the attitude. That's why you have to root for Washington in those scenarios. Do you think that Amazon likes its competitors? 
It doesn't like its competitors. It wants to eradicate them all. But guess what? Amazon is the biggest platform. And so they invite everybody to sell things on their platform. And while you're selling something on Amazon's platform, they're studying you, learning about your product, trying to figure out a way to make it cheaper so that they can then sell it directly, (laughs) thus eradicating the business, right? Everything that everything that Amazon does that even seems like it's a nice thing is actually designed to destroy everything in its path. They so put sm- Toys R Us out of business, dude. <laughs> exactly. Toys R Us decided to sell on their platform, and then it was over. Right. I, they just went direct to the manufacturers and was like, hey, yo, why don't you sell here and just cut out the middleman? And now Toys R Us, the only person that's going to Toys R Us is 50 cent when he rents it out for his kid. I didn't even know that there was a Toys R Us left to rent out. <laughs> and so here's, and so that that's my thing is like, you don't even have to, if your whole thing is that I hate Washington so much that I would never root for Washington. Then what I would counter with is then you don't hate Washington enough to root for Washington. Right. Because you can then turn around and use those resources to stick it to them some more. But people don't understand that there are those selfish reasons to back the pack. Or you could just do it because it's fun and we're all kind of in this together, which is where I'm at. But if you want to take it down that long, dark road, yeah, root for everybody else to be as good as they could be, because the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Perfect, perfect example here. One time, so everybody knows who follows me or whatever. I have a blended, I have a blended family. And when I was playing in the league, my my son's mom was super mad mad at me about about something. She was like, "Ah, I was still playing in the NFL. Oh, I hope your career is terrible. I hope." I was like, "Do you realize how what you're saying right now? If you want me <laughs> to fail, that takes money out of your pocket." Like that takes money out of your pocket, the worse I do. So you should actually be my biggest fan. If you don't like me, if you're upset with me, you should be my biggest fan because then you get more money, right? <laughs> but 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 people <laughs> cut off their nose to spite. I mean, like that's when, you know, like you won't let common sense get in the way of your argument or your emotions. Like you, you just have to do what's in your own self-interest. It, what, is it, what does it say that... Re- Revenge, if you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves, one for you and one for the person that you're out to kill. Um, but what what Ralph, what does success look like for the Pac-12 in bowl games this year? Because I'm like the Washington Boise State game to me wasn't very important in terms of the national um, it was it was good to win that game, but I didn't think it would be detrimental to win the to lose that game to a ranked Boise State team versus the USC-Iowa game is important to win. And I think the most important bowl game to win, period, is the Texas-Utah game. I cannot put enough emphasis in my mind about why that's important because you have Utah, 11-2. and two. People thought could have been a college football playoff team and then they're playing seven and five Texas, which which I absolutely hate because bowl games, I feel like, should be matched up better instead of just conference tie-ins. But I digress. I, I think that that game is the by far the most important game to the conference because you can't have the Big 12's third or fourth best team who's lost five games 
lose to a team that played in the conference championship and could have been a playoff team because that makes your team look like it's like your conference almost looked like pumped up and inflated like you didn't really play anybody tough and you were just going to get in just because you had the most wins. I think that if Oregon, Utah, and USC win, it's gravy. If you can win those three games, then then this will have as weird of a season as it was without getting anybody in the college football playoff um, and with University of Washington somehow having a really good team and managing to, you know, <laughs> take that really great team to seven and five, uh, but also somehow be completely impervious to the to the Mountain West stuff. Like they blew out Hawaii and Boise State in a year where the Mountain West dominated the Pac-12 head to head. So what I mean, what a, what a strange year for for Washington. But I feel like for the Pac-12 to be taken seriously, USC's got to beat Iowa. Oregon's got to get a win and Utah's got to win. It's it's that simple to me. The ASU Florida State game means very little to me because both teams are undergoing massive transitions on their coaching staffs and neither team will have a running back. So it's not even going to be like a classic football game. You're not actually going to see the two teams as they are constructed go head to head. It's just going to be a mess. And so that game doesn't matter to me at all. Uh, Cal game doesn't really matter to me at, at all. Um, you know, they're still without an offensive coordinator and they already had enough offensive issues. I think you got those three important games. And to me, the Washington game was important as well, just with everything that the mountain West has done uh, to the PAC 12. And with people arguing that Boise state belonged in an even bigger uh, possible new year six bowl, I thought that that was really big. Um, and at the same time, knowing that in the Las Vegas Bowl last year, Fresno State beat the crap out of Arizona State. So I think that uh, that was helpful for the Pac-12, but those three games are the ones that matter most. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I just still think that I, – I think that Oregon, um, Wisconsin is important because, you know, the Big Ten was perceived as extremely strong this year. You had – you know, Wisconsin, Penn State, Ohio State, all vying for all vying for spots in the college football playoff. And then Iowa was extremely strong as well. So when when you look at that, you're you're saying, OK, yes, that's good to get a win, especially if you're Oregon, not only just for this year, but coming up, you're looking at, oh, hold up. You got Ohio State in the second game of the season next year at home. So you want to put something out out in the world that makes that that much bigger of a game that that makes this, you know, even bigger, because I actually look at that even bigger than the Auburn Oregon game last year. And for the conference, I'm just saying what what looks like a success for the Pac-12 to me is finishing five and two in bowl games at worst five and two, because you already got a win in Washington. You need USC, Iowa, and then getting uh, Utah over Texas, Oregon over Wisconsin, and then either uh, uh, Washington State over Air Force, Cal over Illinois, or Arizona State over Florida State. I think that looks like a win. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I I think that they're they're more than capable of. Um, I think all the matchups are are pretty favorable. I think that they're more than capable of winning out. It's just a matter of will they? Um, you know, I again that Florida State Arizona State game it, it doesn't mean anything to me either way. 
no matter who wins because it's a shell coaching staff for Florida State. ASU lost their offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator. No Eno Benjamin for ASU. No Cam Akers for Florida State. Kalen Laybourne, the uh, backup running back, very talented backup running back for Florida State, just had surgery. So there will be zero scholarship running backs for Florida State. And Arizona State will be running out there with uh, um, A.J. Carter, who had like 20 carries this year. So it's um, – and no Brandon Ayuk either. So – uh, I guess it'll be kind of a little sneak preview of next year, um, but the the outcome doesn't matter to me that much. Every, every other game I feel like is is winnable and matters, you know, a little bit. But you know that USC game that that's huge for for Clay Helton because Clay Helton has no grace right now afforded to him at all, and I'm not sure that a bowl win will earn him any. But they need it because they're still in the thick of recruiting season and they just need any good press. Well, that 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 leads me to the next point about r- recruiting because we saw some signing day surprises. We saw, you know, USC supposedly having four silent recruits that didn't happen. And you have other schools obviously in the Pac-12 happy or upset depending on where where players go because they're like, ooh, I don't want them to go to my rival, but I'm glad he stayed, stayed in the Pac-12. That's the way I look at these things. I'm like, oh, you, you you wanted him, but I'm glad that he's not a part of that narrative of the, oh, the mass exodus from from the West, all of this. Because I think that, you know, it's, it's one of those things that where you can almost manifest certain things when they're talked about so much. If these recruits are consistently hearing, oh, all the great recruits are, are leaving the West. All of them are leaving, leaving the West. I think that makes it more likely for them to continue to to leave, you know, continue to leave SoCal, continue to leave, you know, Oregon or Washington or where, wherever else. When in reality, if you look at the South, some of the best players from the South leave and go to other conferences. They go to Oklahoma, they go to Texas, they go, they don't stay in their necessary state. But when it comes to the West, this is a narrative that I, I look at it like that. This is almost like a propaganda push um, where the SEC, they don't get, you know, that same type of hype when some of their best players leave. But then, you know, you have players staying in the Pac-12 footprint and all of a sudden it's a mass exodus from from the West, even though you did have Bryce Young leave SoCal to go to Alabama. But. But the question is, where could he have gone? Because he's interested in playing early, the the quarterback from modern day. But I'm looking at it. Okay, if you're looking at a Pac-12 school, where could you have gone to play early? I guess you could have gone to Colorado, but maybe he's interested in winning a national championship or getting close. And they're they're not close. I mean, you you got Utah, but I mean, is that going to put you where you where you want to be? USC's full right right now. I mean, I guess you could have potentially gone to, to Oregon, but you know, a, a ASU who's hot right, right now, mm, they got a quarterback UCLA, not quite close right now. I mean, where else could the kid have gone? But and then it turns into some big drama thing. And I'm just like, it wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. And I, I think that it's important to recognize quarterbacks should be completely separate from this entire equation. Like that you should look at, you should look at, in-state recruiting and footprint recruiting outside of the quarterback because the quarterback's looking for the right coach 
and the right system, and it's going to be very specific to them. Quarterbacks typically come from families that have a little more means, which means they get to travel a little bit more. They're recruited from an even younger age um, by coaches who sort of bounce around or have more connections. I, so I don't think you should look at like DJ Uyagalele or Bryce Young as, you know, losses for the region when every quarterback in Texas is leaving Texas. Almost every quarterback in California is leaving California. Every single quarterback in Arizona, for the most part, leaves Arizona. That's just kind of the cost of doing business. I mean, Jacob Eason left and came back. So um, I, that I think that if you throw quarterbacks out, it was still kind of a down year, especially when you have, you know, um, Bajon Robinson going to Texas instead of, you know, he grew up a USC fan. That was a big issue this year is that you have a lot of people who said they grew up USC fans who, you know, didn't feel like USC could be a place where they played football. Even DJ Uyagalele came out today and said like, hey, yeah, they, I loved USC growing up. They didn't really recruit me, though. One of the, one of the reasons that they didn't really recruit him is because they had Bryce Young in the fold and uh, and then Bryce Young leaves them high and dry. So, you know, that's um, – I, I just uh, – it's going to continue to be a problem. We're sort of more of a global society. You know, any coach can FaceTime any kid at any time. You know, distance doesn't really matter. George, you and I record this podcast from five, 600 miles away from each other. That's just the way that things are now. We're all a little bit more connected, you know, being far from home. It, it matters less the distance and more the culture, you know, and as cultures sort of blend together, you know, people from out West can really get along anywhere. Yeah. They really can because there's not like too much Western yeah. culture, you know. Everybody's kind of taking bits and pieces from from everywhere else as far as that goes. So um, I'm not all that worried about it as long as you can convince good players to come out here as well. Yeah, I, and there there haven't been a whole lot of five stars who've exited, you know, the South or Midwest to come out west, but you do get some of those four star athletes that are willing to move and to, you know, kind of to take that chance because like you, like you said, the culture in the West is a lot more laid back and you have different, you know, kind of some of those different Southern values and, you know, there's food. It's funny because there's food, there's a food issue because I noticed this when I went down to play in Jacksonville is that I eat pretty much everything living in California. Pretty, pretty much everything because I was born in Memphis. So we, we would have soul food at home sometimes. I ate like traditional real Mexican food, Thai food, Indian food, Chinese food, Japanese food, eat ramen, ramen, like real ramen, you know, sukumen, all that. And you're just sitting there like those things aren't readily available down south, but you can live with comfort food where people who are used to eating things that are fried hard all the time and coming out to California or coming out West and they're like, Whoa, what the hell is going out on out here? It is too big. It is too much going on. And then when they go to, you know, some, sometimes when they go to the Northwest, they're like, wow, this is way too white for me. And, and those are the things that you literally have to fight with or battle with when you are recruiting, trying to get kids from down south to leave that environment, especially when a lot of these kids, you know, like what, like, like when you look at families in general, uh, what is it that people generally don't don't move 
further than don't end up living more than like 50 miles away from their parents or away from where they grew up that most people don't. So when you think about that, yeah, of course, geography matters. People, kids are going to want to stay, stay close. But now with the, with what you were saying, Ralph, the advent of, you know, FaceTime, you know, uh, planes being so accessible, all of these, like, you know, it makes the distance less and it makes people more willing to, to leave because I know I got homesick when I was home. And if I've been able to FaceTime my family on a daily basis, multiple times a day, FaceTime my, my sisters, my mom, my dad, my, my, my friends. Cause I didn't even have a cell phone at that point, point in time. Like it would have made things a lot easier for me. And I probably would have been more willing to go other places. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, I've sort of, lived my whole life in the footprint that I grew up in. I'm from Wyoming. I, I came up in uh, Arizona and anytime I'm going to go on vacation, I go back into the, the mountains of the, of the Northwest and the mountain West. Like I just, I know what I know. And I remember the first time that my wife took me back home to Pittsburgh with her, I was petrified, you know, and it ended up being a fascinating, awesome experience, but like I knew nothing. There were people everywhere. They walk different. They talk different. You know, I grew up in Arizona where the oldest building out here is like a 20-year-old Walgreens. They had buildings out in Pittsburgh that said like 1565 on the side, you know, built by stonemasons in the 16th century. And I was just out of my element completely. And I love that. I love having new experiences with my family and everything. But I know what I know and I'm comfortable there. And most people like to be comfortable. They don't – if if you're going to be uncomfortable, it takes sort of a concerted – effort. And so if you go out on a visit, if you're a recruit and it's to a place that sort of makes you feel challenged and uncomfortable right from the get-go, you got to be of a different makeup and a different mindset, or you have to have been on that track for a while. And I think that that's the biggest difference between like a football player and a basketball player. Basketball players are trained from the very, very, very early age that like you are never going to be comfortable. You're a six foot seven person in a world built for five foot eight people. You're not going to be comfortable on a plane. You're not going to be comfortable in a car. The environment shouldn't matter to you because you're going to be in a gym somewhere. You know, it doesn't matter what the weather's like. Your teammates are only going to be your teammates for a maximum of two or three years. You have to form an identity in yourself. It's going to be kind of lonely, but you can do this job anywhere and club teams travel and and everybody is sort of um everybody is sort of raised up that way from a really early age football players it's hey let's establish our culture right here with people who are similar to you from your neighborhood the furthest game that we are going to play away from your neighborhood is a hundred miles with a bunch of people who probably share your makeup and your culture you know, and, and then we're going to lean in real hard to the things that make us comfortable because identity is a huge part of who we are. So you're just raised up a completely different way. And so if you're traveling to a new city to check out a college and it doesn't vibe with your makeup, you know, there's a lot of kids from New Orleans who fly in to look at the the Arizona schools, ASU and um, and U of A. And, and, you know, they get a lot of kids come that come here and say, oh man, that was a really good time. I don't think I could do that for four years. And then they get some kids who are kind of outcasts back where they're from oh, and yeah. say like, yeah, I have no problem doing this. But it's just, it's always interesting to kind of see how recruiting works out for football players because so much of football at the high school level is about 
comfort and culture, you know, whereas basketball, it's about like, Hey, you are always going to be uncomfortable. You should be ready to go anywhere, play anywhere at any time. Yeah. And, and, in basketball, which some of football is transitioning to now is they just literally, I mean, they hop schools, hop teams, hop States, like so, so easily. My, my, my cousin a couple of years ago was one of the top players in Ohio, he moved down to Florida to, to, to go to Mount, Mount Verde just because it was a better opportunity for him playing against better competition. Um, you had, and I know that's a point. I know that's a point you brought up before George. That's why so many of these colleges are bringing in assistant coaches who are familiar with those cultures and those places so that they have somebody to relate to when they get on campus or they feel like they have some connective tissue to where they're from. Yeah. Assistant coaches have more power now than they ever have. You know, it it was always the head coaches, you know, like, oh, we got to keep our head coach, got to keep our head coach. But now when you see even coaches change over, like you saw Chris Peterson and um, and Jimmy Lake, and you've seen it happen in other places where they keep recruiting classes together because assistants stay because, yes, the head coach closes it. But at the end of the day, now in 2019, the assistant coaches matter. We saw uh, Johnny Johnny Wilson flip from Oregon because a GA left. I mean, literally an analyst who was not a coach, a real coach on staff left, and then uh, and then the offensive coordinator took the head coaching job at UNLV. And, and even though they had a wonderful recruiting class, kids, he knew all of that stuff. He was like, and nah, I'm going to go down to ASU. Like that's how important right. those relationships are. And sometimes, and I think coaches, they realize that. And that's why we talked about on the other podcast, the, the last podcast about recruiting, about how it's not necessarily all about the greatest coaches because coaches know that they can overcome uh, that players who are great players can make you look like a great coach, even if you are not. And then the and then the schools also they hire people to coach, and then they hire people to recruit. And some and, and sometimes those people take roles like GA, analyst, graduate assistant, analyst, or some other special assistant to the coach or whatever. Some non. <laughs> some non-football coach that they are allowed to have on staff and that's their whole job is to recruit right nobody nobody ever accused dennis erickson of being like a a, you know genius in the playbook but when he got those miami players down there when he got that head coaching job out in miami won two championships and was able to parlay that into several pack 10 pack 12 coaching jobs two different stints in the nfl you know, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing what some good players will do for your for for your reputation and for your longevity. I mean, look at look at Arizona State. You look at and uh, they have a new defensive coordinator in Tony White, who was their DB coach, their d- defensive back coach, because their their um, their defensive coordinator took the New Mexico job. And you're sitting here and everybody's like, okay, I think it's going to be Antonio Pierce, Antonio Pierce. Because when you look at Arizona State's recruiting, you see Antonio Pierce. You don't see anybody else nearly as much as you see him. He's in all the kids edits. 
he's you know m- uh, m- Mr. Steal your recruit whatever it else yeah. else is like he is he's like he's like if you remember when uh, remember when Suge Knight got up on stage and said like you want to come to Death Row Records you don't have your producer dancing all in your videos yep Remember that? Yeah, Antonio Pierce is like if Suge Knight was Puffy. Yes, yes, he's Puffy, and like he look, he looks like Suge, acts like Puffy, and yeah, he, he's got his fingerprints all over this recruiting class. And that, and that's why I think a lot of people expected him to be defensive coordinator. And when, but from everything that I know about Antonio Pierce, is Antonio Pierce would rather be a head coach than a coordinator because he's he he's like Jerry Maguire. He's great in the living room. But and I think that he wants to be CEO of a of a team and not coordinator of a team because it is a different skill set. And I think it's important to recognize what a what you want in life and what you're good at in life, because if, if Antonio Pierce believes that he's not either capable or to, to be as great as he wants to be as coordinating compared to being a head coach because I do think he's going to be a good head coach when he gets the opportunity provided he hires some good coordinators but maybe it's smart on him to know that being the coordinator is not necessarily the best move for him and his career and his future success because Tony Tony White being uh, named defensive coordinator brought a shock to me because I was like oh wow what are they now going to do with Antonio Pierce? But then, read further down, Antonio Pierce is uh, promoted to assistant head coach. And I was like, ah, bingo. That's that's where that's at. Because I don't think he has any desire to be head coach. I mean, to be defensive coordinator, Ralph. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. He's doing a good job at what he's doing right now. He gets a bump in pay to keep doing that exact thing. Um, you know, he didn't fall into the trap of the Peter principle. And that's what you like to see people who are self-aware, who know their strengths. And, um, that's real big, right? Like, and, and if he is angling to eventually be a head coach somewhere, then this will probably prepare him more taking more ownership without getting bogged down in sort of the minutia of game planning will probably put him more on that track. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if he can just stay connected to the players, learn how to learn be even working even closer with Herm with the head coaching stuff stay connected to the players stay connected to the bigger picture and fully understand how everything works even more and plan his own life out then I think that that is that that's the move because to me it looks like Herm is enjoying coaching that he is enjoying everything that he's doing but you know, he is an old man. So this could only be another two, three, four years to where he's putting these other coaches that he brought in, everybody from uh from Kevin Mawai to uh to um uh, to Cincinnati's old old coach, uh Hugh No no, no, oh, no. Uh, Marvin yeah. Lewis. And yep. and some of these other people in positions to move up in their career advance their career and i think that eventually in a few years herm's just going to be like all right i'm done i've done my good job elevated the program put it in a good position and now it's your turn to take over guys right and uh you know i know that down in university of arizona they were kind of like hoping that 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 they'd throw some cash at antonio pierce to bring him down there to run the defense uh didn't work out that way i tell you what if antonio pierce does end up getting a head coaching job 
at uh, Arizona State, it's going to drive Arizona Wildcats absolutely nuts because, you know, he's part of that desert swarm defense down there. Um, and uh, they really don't like seeing him in maroon and gold. But, you know, he, he's also one of those guys that played like, what, one year of college football after after leaving JUCO. That was just kind of a pit stop for yeah. him. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure he's too wrapped up in that. Yeah, but what if, what, um, what if, what if Antonio Pierce, I mean, if, if things don't go well for Arizona this year with Kevin Sumlin, he could be a guy who could be on Arizona shortlist. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? I mean, and, and that would be, you know, that, that that would be really, really good for him. And that'd be a great way to kind of reconcile their relationship. But what university is hoping, uh, what University of Arizona is hoping and what Kevin Sumlin's hoping is that the hire they did make for defensive coordinator actually ends up making the difference and staves that possibility off for a couple more years. And that's uh, Paul Rhodes, former Iowa State head coach, uh, who was serving in a capacity of defensive back coach at UCLA. He's going to come down to University of Arizona, and they're going to see if they can right the ship. Um, they're going to move away from the three-three-five defense and, and and have some multiple fronts. Um, and what they're really hoping is it gives them a crack at four-star defensive end um, Jason Harris, because that's you know that's who they have their eye on. And and I think losing him to Colorado or Indiana would be incredibly embarrassing for them, considering that their dad Sean Harris is a you know w- one of the better players. Um, in U of A history, and then also, you know, his brother Jalen is currently on the defensive line, probably the best player on their defense down there. Um, and so, you know, they announced that, and then they announced that they got uh, Schoolers, yep. uh, Brennan Schooler, right? They they announced him uh, as a transfer, and slowly but surely, they're going to try to build this defense up under Paul Rhodes. It should be yeah, really interesting. I, I am like when when you look at. Paul Rhodes history and you look at all the places that that he has been uh, obviously he was um I Iowa State's head head coach he's been at you know a GA at Ohio State he's been at the uh the defensive coordinator at Pittsburgh when they had some good years Auburn's defensive coordinator been at Arkansas UCLA and I, I am, I'm just spe- speculating. So there have been some years that he's had some good defenses, some defenses that have just been iffy. And when you look at, you know, uh, UCLA's defensive performances in the back end last year, yes, part of it could be about scheme. Yes, part of it could be, I mean, it could be anything. However, I, I, I just... You know, like you typically only see these hires from people who came from, you know, having good defenses the previous year because UCLA's past defense this year in 2019 was dead last in the Pac-12. They allowed 60, a 66% completion percentage, which was worse than the Pac-12. They gave up 3,700 yards, 32 touchdowns, and 310 yards a game, which was worse than the Pac-12. So I, I mean, so pardon, par- pardon me for ha- for being a little bit skeptical of what's going to happen at at University of Arizona. Well, let's be fair to UCLA; they only had you know multiple top ten recruiting <laughs> classes to deal with. So, dude, you know, it's I not. Mean, isn't isn't yeah? Isn't I mean, that weird though? That the narrative was that the cupboard was was yes. bare when Chip got there, but. 
when you look at the rankings, I mean, this is either a case of Jim Moore was only recruiting off paper and not develop either not de- not developing players, just recruiting off stars because none of those guys translated into into top tier players. It it was weird. They had these really good recruiting classes, but then when Chip got got there, the cupboard was was bare. I found that odd. Yeah, I mean, it, nobody should be saying that the cupboard was bare um, because highly regarded players didn't develop the way that they should have there. That's you know that's a really weird way of looking at it. I I'm out here. There's a, a college called Grand Canyon University. They got a really uh, good basketball team. And they built a brand new stadium for them, and they had to they had to gut it about three years in to add three thousand more seats, just because of you know the excitement that was going on. But you know that it kind of reminded me of UCLA football of like Chip Kelly going in there cutting players and you know tearing things up. Like no, it was nice before. Like it was it was nice and new before. So this is a remodel, not a rebuild. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise that the cupboard was empty and that they're having a you know um that they're building in the middle of an empty field or something they had good players he just didn't come in right away and find a way to use the players that were on the team to the best of their ability and you can turn around you can blame Jim Mora Jr for a little bit of that and the mindset that that team had when he left but you know he 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 cut and gutted a lot of this team himself those are choices that he was making to do things his way. And that's who you hired. That's what you ask for when you bring in a guy like Chip Kelly. So you can't really complain too much. I do have a question for you, though. Um, since you're not completely sold on Dorian Thompson Robinson, and we now have two different quarterbacks who are going to be in the transfer portal um, from Pac-12 schools, do you think that UCLA would be a good landing spot for either Joey Yellen or KJ Costello? And if not UCLA, where might be a good spot? Okay, so KJ Costello, he leave, he'll leave Stanford. And I thought that he was going to have a really good year this year. I thought that he was going to have an opportunity to throw the ball more. I thought David Shaw was going to let him pitch it around. Started out okay, I guess. Then he was hurt all year long. I mean, I I don't think that either one of those spots is a is a good spot for I. Well, I I don't think that UCLA is a good spot for for KJ Costello. I actually think that Arizona would be a better spot for KJ Costello. Because Grant, yeah, yeah, because Costello has experience running an offense. He has experience doing all of these Going things there and that he needs Canal. to do. He's won games. He's played in big games. Like there's so much to like about Costello, especially especially as a as a stopgap or bridge, because it was clear this year that Grant Gannell either wasn't ready. Or Kevin Sumlin and the staff did a poor job of putting him in good positions to be successful because they kept switching him and Khalil Tate out like all year long. So you have to say, all right, where should he go? If you're KJ Costello, you should go to either Arizona or you should go to Colorado because Colorado's leaving a four-year start or even Utah. They're, they're They're all wide open. You know, kind of four, three, four-year starters 
at at all the places and now they're gone so nobody else really has any experience or has a leg up yeah and and it's not like they brought in some hot shot recruit at any of those positions that they expect to come in and play immediately well, I really, I really like Colorado as a potential landing spot for for Joey Yellen. I think he'd be really great there. He grew up a Peyton Manning fan. It'd be kind of cool for him to to head out there. But answer me this: One, did Jacob Eason do enough in the Las Vegas Bowl to entertain the idea of going pro? And two, if he does, could you see KJ Costello stepping into the mix at Washington? Um, real real quick on on, on Joey Yellen though, I. I don't think that it's it, it, it's weird because yes, he had a good showing in the one game against Arizona State, but at the same time, I'm I understand why he's transferring. It makes complete sense. But yeah, because you're playing behind Jaden Daniels, who's not coming out like that un, unless he just did unless he did decides in the offseason that he's going to smoke and drink himself out of out of the potential NFL right. career. It's not happening. Like you're gonna you're gonna need to pray for an injury, pray for something you know tragic to happen in his life, and and any of those things he'll probably bounce back from any anyway. So if I'm yelling, I agree with you. I go to <clears throat> I try Arizona, Colorado, Utah, maybe even Washington. But to answer your question about Eason though, Eason wasn't spectacular in the in in, in the bowl game. He was twenty two for twenty three. 210 yards and a touchdown. I mean, when and when you look at his season long num- numbers, he finished in the Pac-12. He was number Let me pull it up super quick. He was he finished the season 7th in passing. He uh was uh 238 for 330 for 373 with eight touchdowns and 22 I'm sorry eight interceptions 22 touchdowns 243 yards a game he was okay I guess he was eighth in the conference in passing efficiency eighth in the conference the people who were butt buffing Tyler Huntley Slovis Herbert Gordon Daniels Luton and Davis Mills at Stanford. And I'm just like, I mean, he was right above Dorian Thompson Robinson. Like, yes, he looks the part. He looks the part. Jacob Eason looks the part. But if you have another year of eligibility and you have been doing what he has been doing, I'm sitting there just like, all right, yes, you had a decent year, but you're just going to be going off speculation. And unless you can speculate that you're a top 10 pick, which I don't think he's going to to be, you put yourself in a situation to where, you know, like you're putting your NFL career and money at risk as opposed to coming back and changing some of those oh no moments into, all right, okay, okay, this kid looks legit now. You know what's interesting about about Jacob Eason is this year was probably better than three of Jake Browning's four years at quarterback. But that means that in the last five years, Washington has had just above average quarterback play, like not, not even good quarterback play. Because Jake Browning, as a freshman, had 16 touchdowns, 10 interceptions. As a junior, 19 touchdowns, 5 interceptions. And as a senior, 16 touchdowns, 10 interceptions. 
Jacob Eason had 23 and 8 this year. Only Jake Browning's sophomore year, where he had 43 touchdown passes, and most of those came in the first six games of the season against subpar competition before people kind of caught on to what he was doing. You know, uh, it, it really hasn't been great quarterback play for the University of Washington. But do you think do you think it'll speed up Jacob Eason's decision knowing that he's going to have to get used to a new offensive coordinator next yes. year? Yes, yes. I, I think that that leans, probably leans more to him leaving. But it depends on who that offensive coordinator is. If they can, if that guy is a proven quarterback developer, then I think he may stay because he may see the writing on the wall and say, hold up, I do need to get to, to get better. So I, I think that, that that's probably where his head is at. He's like, all right, let me get a little bit better. Let me improve my draft stock, my draft status. Because I was talking, it's funny because I was talking to my son about this today. About He asked me, how do players know or when is it the right time to come out and go to the NFL or the NBA? I said, you don't go when you think you're going to get drafted high. You go when you're ready. Because if you're not ready, yes, you can be drafted highly, but you've cut your career short and cut off your back-end money, which actually where the real money is on that second contract. So if you can stay in school for an extra year because you need it to develop, to give yourself career longevity, then that's actually the optimal move. Because is it is it optimal to 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 play four years, make make thirty million dollars as a top 10, 10, 10 pick, and and be labeled as a as a bust, or is it better to stay in school, either still be a top ten pick or be a top twenty pick, and then have a fifteen year career? Part uh, half of it as a starter, half of it as a backup, and make eighty million dollars. True. Now let's talk about Bush Hamdan for a second because it feels a little bit extra savage when it's your coworker who who gives you the boot. Because you know Chris Peterson was there, and then Chris Peterson moves on the first day. The first day of the Jimmy Lake administration, he fires what was his offensive counterpart. Um, and uh, I don't know, to me, that just feels a little bit more uh, cold blooded. Like you just, you're, you, or maybe it's the move you have to make step in there, establish your kingdom, leave absolutely no question that you're the one in the driver's seat. I, I think that, that that move was coming no matter who was the coordinator. I mean, no, no matter who was the head coach. If Chris Peterson was the head coach, Hamden was getting fired. If Jimmy Lake's the head coach, he was gone. I mean, Washington's offense has not been good, really. I mean, since 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 Jonathan Smith. I mean, the- so now there's three open coordinator positions. What do you do? Like, who's getting who? Oh, every everybody is fighting for. I mean, so originally everybody was was fighting for Zach Hill from Boise State, which which may have been a reason why Boise State didn't play out that well versus Washington. Yeah, I tweeted that last <laughs> night. Uh, Boise State looks like they could use some offensive coordination. Right. Exactly. So Arizona State stole Boise State's coordinator, um, and then you have. Um, uh, Rhett Lashley at 
uh, SMU, SMU yeah. who could have definitely used a good offensive performance, but they got absolutely boat raced by by FAU, um, which was just horrendous. And, you know, if you're sitting there and, you, and he's sitting there, had people knocking down his door. I know that there are some some calls that probably didn't come after that game. Uh, granted, a lot of that was on his players. They made some really poor throws. They fumbled. They did all kind, kind of stuff. So it wasn't all him. But it just looks bad when you get housed, <laughs> you know, and you're up for office of coordinator jobs. Uh, but the but the hot name around is is Chris Long from uh, former Notre Dame, former Notre Dame uh, offensive coordinator. And he got the boot after averaging 37 points per game, 37 points per game. One of the nation's more top offenses in terms of scoring. And he got the boot. So I had to do some asking around some, some, some digging, right? Cause I'm like, how does this guy get, get fired? Especially Everything that you hear on the recruiting circuit is that this dude is a high-level master recruiter, okay? Master recruiter. That he is one of those guys that you hire and is able to, that he's part of the orchestration of a couple West Coast kids, top West Coast kids going to Notre Dame. And I know this for a fact. And here is what I asked. I asked a question to... Uh, a couple of non people who will re- remain anonymous. What do you think of Chip Long? I, I didn't mean Chris. I, I called him Chris Long earlier. I meant Chip Long. What do you What do you think of Chip Long? I heard he's a good recruiter. I also heard players don't like him, but I didn't. But that didn't really make sense to me. How could both be true? Here's the quote. I'm biased, but I'll tell you the full scope. Uh, we had a close relationship, and he's the one who brought me to Notre Dame, elite football mind, and he's one of the few coaches that makes sure your life outside of football is going well. The only issue is people in the program uh, didn't didn't like the way that he would yell at players. Someone like me yelling isn't an issue. Others were strongly affected by his style. I love him though, and I'm bummed he's no longer with us. I'm, I can I tell you uh, that I'm not surprised by that quote. And uh, he was somebody who was a recruiting coordinator and tight ends coach at Arizona State before leaving with Mike Norvell to go to Memphis. And uh, <laughs> and here here are a couple of things that would, were told to me while he was here. Um, incredible recruiter, gonna be a head coach someday. Uh, why is everybody named Chip a jerk? so um i mean one of the nicest people i've ever met in my entire life not not even just nicest i wouldn't say that they're nice i would say that like one of the best human beings i've ever met in in my life who's still kind of a pretty intense person loves on everybody super charitable (laughs) even he was like man i i don't know if i can if i can do chip long like I, i that's that's a lot. Like that dude is a lot. Wow. See, but see, see, here's the, here's the good news is this is look at a guy like, um, like coach, coach Ogeron. Yeah. Look at Bill Belichick. Look at, 
um, Pete Carroll, guys who who got jobs. I mean, and and the list goes on and on and on. Guys who got jobs, and the first time they thought that they had to do things one way, and then they get fired, and then that changes their approach with how they do it. But then sometimes you get guys like Tom, like Tom Coughlin, who won't change. <laughs> That's why he's fired in Jacksonville right right now. But um, but I, I think that that is a big thing. So hopefully, whatever the things were that got uh, Chip Long fired, in terms of you know how to deal with the players, in terms of football wise, because you don't have to yell to be effective. Like that's it. Like you don't always have to yell, cuss people out, and all that stuff because it can't just be yelling. It's got to be some some not cool things that are being being said. So you so he's either going to have to change his style because there's no way he'll be a head coach if that's the style he uses with with players because you have to get the players. But it's weird because the players say that he's a great recruiter. And he checks on them as a pe- people person, so he probably feels like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You're like, this dude is one way half the time, but then some of the other time, what the hell is he doing? Or or the dude's just going 11 out of 10 and everything. <laughs> like Maybe that's it. Like yeah, Maybe he just goes hard as a recruiter, hard as a friend, hard as a hard as a coach, you know, and, and one of those grates on you because in only one of those is he in a position of authority. So, you know, uh, who knows, but I just, uh, all I know is only one team can end up with him. And if you're patient, you know, you might end up with uh, Jason Garrett (laughs) on the the market because that dude's for sure getting fired. Dude, but, but hold on the Jason, Jason Garrett still has a shot, dude, because, and, and this, this is where Jason Garrett is just like Clay Helton. They make it so difficult to fire them every single year. So they the, the, the Cowboys lost to the Eagles. So they're seven and eight. Eagles are eight and seven. But next week, I think the uh the Eagles play the Giants and the Cowboys play the Redskins. So if the Cowboys win and Eagles lose, the Cowboys go to the playoffs. So <laughs> so it, it's one of those things, Ralph, that if you just look, like th- th- that's probably what's going to happen. And then Jason Garrett's going to go win a playoff game or two, get to the NFC championship and then, and then lose on a controversial call. And then everybody's going to be like, how do you, how do you fire the guy now? Right. And, and that is Chip and that is Clay Helton too. They are the same guy, but, but if things don't go, go right, then you, you are right. Jason Garrett may be in the, in the offensive coordinator business, but I, th- I think that that's where rivalries are even stronger because you got Washington, Oregon. Uh, who else is look- looking for a coordinator? Uh, Isn't Cal, Cal still on the market? Yeah. 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 All looking for coordinators. And you have to think that Cal is probably not as attractive as Washington and Oregon because the, because the paycheck won't be as big. So you're like, mm. so now you got Washington and Oregon who clearly hate each other fighting for the same coach. Hmm. That should go over well. <laughs> that should go over real, real well. Um, uh, I wanted to, be, be, before we get out of here today, though, I want to hit on the the recruiting classes slightly a bit. What was your biggest surprises from National Signing Day? 
Um, I was pretty surprised by zero drama from Brendan Rice. He just went in there and inked his signature with Colorado and said, let's do this. That rounded out what, what to me was a really good class for Colorado. And I hadn't read it yet, but I did see that somebody wrote a piece for the athletic on, on just how good this recruiting class could be for Colorado. So I'm excited to, to sit down and maybe read that this evening. But, um, I, so yeah, Brendan Rice, I know was kind of waffling a little bit. There weren't too many out and out surprises for me. Uh, Utah though, didn't Utah land like Clark Phillips? Um, and that, that, yep, that one yeah, was out of yeah, nowhere. Yeah, I didn't yeah, even they, have that yeah, on. They got yeah. him from, they got him from Ohio State, right? Yeah, that was not even on my radar. He is somebody that I think is maybe rated a little, I wonder if he's a little bit higher on 24-7 than he is on Rivals, but he's a very good player. Like, he's a play now player. And that, that was huge for Utah to get somebody who could probably step in, um, and do some damage right away in the defensive backfield, especially if um, we're assuming that Jalen Johnson is, is done and, you know, and, and they're going to need some help. They're going to be young and they have no problem if you're ready, you know, and, and and rivals has him as the number 63 player in the entire country, which would rank him. Let's see where that ranks him just among, amongst uh, overall PAC 12 recruits. Let's see. The highest recruit that anybody landed in the PAC 12 was Justin Flo, which is pretty obvious. According to Rivals, he's the number four player in the country. From that point, Savelle Smalls comes in at number 13 to Washington. Uh, Noah Sewell at number 16 to Oregon. And then, I mean, as far as the top 25 goes, that's it. That's all that stayed with PAC 12 schools. Uh, and then I think from that point, you, you drop down the list pretty far um, before you have anybody else who signed with a, with a PAC 12 school. Um, and actually it, it might be, it is, it is, it's Clark Phillips. He's the fourth highest rated prospect in the entire PAC 12, according to rivals to sign and announce that's, that's a very important part and announce uh, with, uh, with a Pac-12 school. That's huge for Utah. So to me, that's oh, by sure. far the biggest surprise. Yeah, I, I definitely, uh, like that was a huge move. I went, when I first started hearing buzz about it a day or two before signing day, I was like, yeah, Ohio State, they put out DBs every year. Like I was surprised, but I was very, very surprised by that move. The other thing that I would say that I was surprised by was, um, Arizona State's recruiting class. I was surprised. I mean, grant, granted, I, I do agree that we have to give a lot of credit to, to to Colorado because they put together a really good class. They're they're um, on twenty four seven. They're thirty six ranked. They still got a couple. They still got three spots open potentially. Uh, but Arizona State sitting at thirty seven with only fifteen signees so far. Uh, commit slash sign signees, and I'm looking. And I expect them to close strong because there's a couple players who, if you read anything, you know, they uh, there's a lot of people who think that when they announce at the at their bowl games that they're going to get Elijah Badger, the kid, uh, Nada out of Folsom, too, and LV Bunkley Shelton, the wide receiver. So you're looking at their class with their 15 recruits and just adding no a five star. Uh, cause, uh, I think not as a five star, right? 
if he is, it's on twenty four seven on Rivals. I don't think okay, he's he, even in the top okay hundred, but he's definitely he's definitely a four star. Yeah, yeah. So so adding three more four star players is going to have them with a really good close. I mean, in addition to everything else, how many spots do they have open? Um, five. I mean, they they got some blue shirts. Jack Jones technically wasn't even on scholarship last year, so that they're gonna have some. Uh, they're going to have some blue shirts and then a couple of their signees this year are going to be blue shirts for next year. So they got five spots. They're probably looking to get some ready-made offensive linemen. There's some rumors out there that, you know, they're looking at some people from A&M, from Stanford. Stanford. Uh, I think everybody's looking at some people from Stanford, but um, I think that, you know, they're, they're trying to get somebody who can come in and play right away on the offensive line, but you're right. I mean, they're expected to close out on, on three different four-star offensive weapons, um, to go along with what they already have. And I think that we're just getting further and further away from the initial reaction to the Herm Edwards hire, which was universally, and I, and I, I don't use this lightly at all, universally panned and mocked. Um, I, didn't go, I didn't go so far as to come out and say that it was bad or make fun of it or anything like that. But I did write a pretty lengthy piece at the time saying, like, in order for this to work, a lot of things are going to have to sort of fall in line. And it seems like things are sort of starting to go that way. I mean, let's not get ahead of ourselves. This is still a team that won seven games, you know, between seven and eight games, three years in a row. So, um, you know, seven wins last year, seven wins this year under Herm Edwards with a shot at an eighth win in a bowl game. Uh, So nobody should be saying, like, coach of the year or anything like that. But it's not it's not the worst thing that ever happened, which that was the prediction from everybody was that this was just an enormous joke of a hire. And I was, I was in the same boat as you, Ralph. I was just like, this is going to be hundred percent feast or famine. Like there's no, there's no in between. Like this is either going to be a disaster of a, of a hire, or this is going to be really, really good for building a program. I I didn't think there was any in between uh, when it, when it came to that. Um, I was also surprised with Utah. I, obviously, like we like we said with Clark, uh, them them getting Clark and then finishing super strong. That was amazing. But they only have 17 spots and a lot of and a lot of room left too. How what what do you think about their class? It's a good class. I mean, it, it they've got a lot of room for people to come in and help right away. Um, and that you know up until very recently. I think I've brought this up on the podcast again and again and again. They didn't even have anybody from uh, a state that has a Pac-12 school in it, right? Um, but they closed out really strong in-state. They got three, four players from the state of Utah, which is really, really good for them because that usually means that they're running up against BYU for some of those players. So to beat out BYU is is a really, really big deal. Uh, they got the guys that they got from Texas, but they also established a presence in California, which I thought was very important, especially with the Clark Phillips thing. Like, again, so they, they've got more than one four-star because they got Van Fillinger um, out of Draper, Utah. And both of those guys could probably come in and make an immediate impact. Clark Phillips is going to have to put some weight on, but, I mean, he's a real legit 
player and for him to flip from Ohio State, that's huge. And it was really funny to see Utah fans trolling Ohio State fans. You know, who Ohio State fans could bleed eight four stars and still have a top 20 recruiting class. Um, but it, it was fun to see Utah fans being able to get on Ohio State fans' nerves on signing day. Like Utah Twitter just has this unique way of getting under people's skin. And, and I thought that was pretty entertaining. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Ralph. I, I think that that Utah finished strong. I thought UCLA did as well. That they put themselves in a really good position. They even got a quarterback who, who can could possibly compete with um, with Dorian Thompson Robinson. And then the kid from who transferred from Washington is going to be eligible. This upcoming year, oh, the, the kid is Parker M- M- McGuire. This kid from New New Hampshire, ironically, which leads me to believe that the kid is underrated and could be really good because Chip Kelly is from New Hampshire, so he's got ties there. So it's weird to pull a kid from New Hampshire to play football, but I think that that could be a sneaky good uh, re- recruiting class. Yeah. I'll tell you what, Rivals Rivals loves that kid. Rivals has him as the number nine pro-style quarterback in the country. So they they think very highly of him. He's huge. He's six foot seven. Um, you'll have to help me out with this because you watch a lot more UCLA than me. Do they play a 3-4 or something? Because yes. they have like seven kids that you could probably call linebackers or maybe like stand-up rush ends. I- uh, this... They- <laughs> One third of their class is linebackers. Yeah, I, th- I think the goal is to be a three, to be a three four. They were set up more like their roster was more constructed to be a four three, but I think they've been uh, slowly, you know, over the last two classes, trying to get players to fit that system, you know, b- b- because that because that's what you know. Um, Oregon played when 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 Chip Chip was there, a version of a of a three four. You know, or um, either that, or they're going to be more of a three-three-five team. So, so that's that's their actual goal. Um, yeah. Well, you can also tell that one of their goals is to just be tall and long, because twenty-one out of twenty-three of their commitments are at least six-one, and uh, seventeen out of twenty-three are at least six-two. So this is going to be a tall ass team. If they got that weight program going, then 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 a couple of years from now, that these guys are going to look like monsters. Oh, for sure, for for sure. But I am interested to to see, and I know we'll talk about it soon. The rest of the class, though, because there are a bunch of really good players out there that that the Pac-12 could close on. I mean, that I mean, everybody is wondering because you 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 have people that. Um, at Oregon that think that that your video with Keely Ringo in the Oregon shirt after he's just been, you know, so secretive and G14 classified about his recruiting would slip up and wear an Oregon shirt. Eh, I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah. Keely Ringo comes in to watch his teammates sign at Saguaro High School 
And I've known Keeley a long time, and I just say, like, hey, man, you want to talk a little bit about your teammates? Because he knows. Like, I know he doesn't want to talk about his recruitment. And and so, you know, I'm not going to ask him to do anything that he doesn't want to do. And he's like, of course I'll talk about my teammates. So I, I tape a two-minute video with him talking about, you know, his quarterback who's going to Bucknell, his defensive backfield mate who's going to Washington, Jacoby Covington, Damian Sellers, who was he was on the defense with, who's going to UCLA. Um, who did like a hat reveal. We talk about all those guys and I upload the video and I realize like this dude's in an Oregon long sleeve shirt <laughs> the entire time. And my mentions were just an absolute mess after that. Cause it's signing day. He's wearing an Oregon shirt, but he says he didn't sign anywhere yet. And it's really between Oregon and Georgia. Georgia had to feel pretty good about things heading into the day. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was pretty messy. His mom's got like a university of Oregon avatar, uh, which also, I guess his mom held like a live Python or something like that in a photo shoot for, I want to say it was university of Georgia and the NCAA came in and said no more posing with live animals. So Keely Ringo's mom, uh, got NCAA rules changed, which is a fun little tidbit. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I don't know if he's going to Oregon or, or Georgia. I've, I've thought Georgia since God for five months. And I think I even, you know, I made a public prediction saying that he'd go to Georgia and I don't feel like changing it because you know how I am. If I make the prediction, I'm just going to stand by it. Even if I get new information, you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll go down with the ship. I, I, I do know that he was in contact with Justin Flo before Justin Flo announced his commitment to Oregon. You know, they, those two were talking and Justin Flo let him know ahead of time. I know that for sure. So, yeah. You know, maybe that's a good sign for, for Oregon fans, but uh, it'll be really interesting when this whole thing gets revealed. How about Gary Bryant Jr.? I feel like he's got to I, – I think that he sees that he could go to USC in what is a down year for skill positions in that class and really be the shining star of the class. Yeah, um, but they still have a lot of players at that position. They do have a lot of players at that position, but at the end of next year, most of those guys will be gone. So – Yeah. Um, I, and, and, you know – Gary Bryant doesn't think you really think Gary Bryant thinks he can't go in there no. and be better than some of those dudes. And I'll tell you right now, like he's well, not, I mean, he's you're, not, you're not Amon Ross St. Brown, but yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like you're not going to take Amon Ross St. Brown or Tyler Vaughn's spot. If they, if, if Vaughn stays like you're like, you're not like, you're going to be competing with the Drake kid at, uh, I think it's Drake, right? The Drake other, London. Yeah. Six yeah. foot five monstrous yeah. wide receiver. Yeah. Yeah, so you're going to be fighting with Drake Drake London for catches and, and anybody else that they that they have in that room. But if but you won't be one of the top two guys. I think that Gary Bryant probably in his mind thinks, all right, well I'm I'm gonna come there. I'm your punt returner. I'm your kick returner. I'm gonna get some reps on the field. You know, I I don't I don't think he's worried about anything. So in my mind, he's a USC lean. Um, I can tell you that you know. You, ASU fought real hard to get his attention, and I, and I I don't think that he's he's going to end up uh, going to ASU. But I, so so in in my head, I think he'll announce for USC. Yeah, the recruiting. We will get to all of that in the coming weeks, and we appreciate your time, appreciate your energy. Thank you guys for listening to the Pac-12 Apostles podcast. Make sure you guys share it with a friend. Any questions, comments, anything, send it to I'm Mad at unafraidshow.com. Peace out. Catch you guys later. Merry Christmas.